Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. The journey of a lifetime is about wrestling. It's about wrestling between that sense of who you are inside and the expectations of the world around you. E.E. Cummings once said, the hardest thing in life is to be yourself when everybody around you is trying to make you something different. The real test of an education in our times and for the future is not our capacity to make everybody the same, but to think about how teaching and learning works for the differences in all of us. Henry Bloom once said in The Atlantic in 1998 that neurodiversity may be every bit as crucial for the human race as biodiversity is for life in general. And he asked the question, who can say what form of wiring will prove best at any given moment? Well, we want to talk about the way we might wire schools so that they think about difference and they think about diversity and they think about the ways in which we might respond best to people who see, feel, think about the world a little bit differently to other people. Shadia Hancock is just the right person for us to be talking to today. She's a young person of considerable capacity. She's currently studying a Bachelor of Speech Pathology. She's also the proud owner and founder of Autism Actually. I can't wait to hear about her story. I'm really excited, Adriano. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you again here on another episode of Game Changers. I am super, super excited about our guest today. I have been a huge admirer of Shadia's for quite some time now. We connected on LinkedIn, I think a number of years ago, and I followed her journey. Uh, it's a journey that continues to inspire me. We normally would do a bit of banter right now, Phil, but I don't want to do that because I really want to get into this conversation because I really feel that this conversation today could be one of our most significant game changer episodes that we have ever produced because it fundamentally is at the heart of what a school for tomorrow is a deeply human-centered one that is intentionally purposeful about understanding that every person in our community is home to a unique life. Shadia, it is so wonderful to have you on our show today uh, and, and for our listeners to get to hear your particular journey and the wonderful work that you are doing, particularly through Autism Actually, an organization that you've founded. I want to start off by asking you a question that we ask every one of our game changers, and that is, can you tell us your story? How have you gotten to where you are today? Oh, big, big question. Um, I guess it all started right from the beginning. Um, I was formally identified as autistic when I was three years old. So um, my mum became quite a big advocate for me and sort of learning more about what being autistic means for me. And so I had the, um, I think, opportunity to access early supports from a very young age 
And then at age eight, I worked out my identity through, um, because at the school that I was at at the time, uh, we were part of a program for autistic students. So it was sort of, I guess, a bit normal being a bit different. It wasn't something where I felt a bit out of place at the school. And then one day I saw a poster that said autism on the wall. I don't remember much more about that, but something clicked in my mind that it seemed to explain my friends. Mm -hmm. And so I went home to mama and I asked her, are my friends autistic? And she said, yes. And then I connected the dots said, oh, am I autistic as well? And I think being able to have the access to my identity and to have someone who was on board with it and able to provide me with support and resources was extremely powerful. And then when I got to high school, of course, I started thinking about it a bit more and uh, thinking about how to explain to teachers what it's like being autistic, uh, particularly as many of my differences are kind of hidden. Um, So I went to see someone speak actually at a school and we're good friends now, and he is also autistic, and he talked about what it is like being autistic, what it's like being autistic in schools, some of the strengths and challenges we might face, and I guess from that moment on, I was really, I really admired his ability to talk about his journey, and I decided from, I think, entry level or grade seven onwards, our school didn't have year levels, um, that I really wanted to be involved in this process. And so it all started with me talking to my teachers about my autism. And so I wrote a letter and describing my sensory issues, the way I learn that my mum then presented to, to my teachers. I then decided to, to do a talk about autism with my mum at the school. And then I was approached by one of the teachers who was the entrepreneur teach, entrepreneurship teacher at the school who said, this could actually be a really good business idea. I think a lot of people would benefit from hearing your perspective. And then also hearing the impact it had on my current teachers on their understanding of autism and realising what it means for me. So I guess from there, having that supportive community environment um, and being able to have that safe space to um learn about advocacy, it came sort of naturally. And then having that key person who gave me the courage to take it further was really powerful. And those those learning curves still are uh, with me today with my advocacy work. And I guess it also inspired me to want to give back to the community by going into allied health and, and bringing that personal perspective to the table. I love always asking that question, Shadia, because, uh, I never know what I'm going to get as a response because every, everyone's story is is so different and unique uh, and, and significant. When I was listening to you, it was clear to me that there was a moment of discovery for you, a moment of discovery about your identity being autistic. Can you share with our listeners what it is like for a young person to come to that realisation that they are neurodiverse? Mm, I think it's a mindset and and realizing the whole idea around neurodiversity I think is really important not just for neurodivergent individuals but everyone that we're all part of this community of different minds and all of us have something 
um, unique to bring to the table, but um, doesn't mean any of us are lesser. It's just that we think differently. Yeah. And that's a good thing in, in the world to have those diverse minds and perspectives. So I guess for me, it really shifted that perspective that I was starting to think about as I experienced bullying and all that other stuff that is not pleasant for anyone um, from thinking that I'm wrong, I'm abnormal to, oh, autism is actually a way of being, an identity, a culture, all that sort of thing that's not lesser, it's just different and that I should feel proud of being autistic, that I have unique strengths and that I might have some issues along the way, but there are supports out there and it's... um, and yeah, I guess for me, it was just a feeling of empowerment. And I think I was really lucky to be at a school where the principal himself was openly neurodivergent. And I think that also gave me the courage to really reshift my thinking around what different differences mean and, and, and shifting from that deficits-based narrative to a neurodiversity-friendly, I guess, framework or paradigm. It's so exciting, uh, Phil, to sit here and listen to a dynamic young individual who embraces all that is unique and special about their inherent worth and possibility. And that Shadia is an individual that ran towards your neurodiversity. And, and you now have become this great champion for neurodivergent individuals. So much of your work is centered around changing the narrative around autism and neurodivergent individuals through awareness education, and of course, engagement. Can you please explain to our listeners what exactly is neurodiversity? Because there'll be many out there who who still remain confused about exactly what what neurodivergent individuals are and how they can best support them. So let's start with that definition first. Hmm. Well, neurodiversity was actually a term coined by Judy Singer, um, who is an autistic neurodivergence person herself. And it was sort of based on the idea about biodiversity, that there are all diverse kinds of minds that come in different forms. Uh, And the idea that all of us are part of a neurodiverse community. Um, And then the term neurodivergent was coined by, oh, I can't remember the name, but if you look it up on Google, it will come up by a different (laughs) person. (laughs) Um, Yes, Google. Uh, And... (laughs) And it centered around that idea that some people in the community are differently wired. So it's reshifting that perspective of seeing something like autism as disordered or a deficit to there are natural variations in the way that human beings are wired. And all of us are part of that neurodiverse community. We're all part of a neurodiverse community. And I think for me, being part of that community in a school environment and going to a school where it was okay to be different and actually it was normal to have differences and discuss that openly, it really showed me the possibilities of, for example, neurodiversity-friendly workplaces or universities or just the community as a whole. And I guess when I started delving deeper and seeing sort of more the impairment-based perspectives, I thought, it's only, it's not covering the whole picture of neurodiversity and also uh, realising that all of us have something to contribute to society meaningfully. It might not take the same form as the so-called majority, but we all have something to contribute. We all have strengths and we all have areas of support that we need. 
And I think um, a discussion that's now happening a lot is the fact that, for example, autistic people, in the past we were labelled, for example, as not being good socially, mm-hmm. you know, um, lacking empathy, all that sort of thing. The research is now showing that it's actually a difference in the way that we communicate and interact with the world rather than something that's inherently disordered. The right. issue comes with when non-autistic and autistic people talk together and the differences in our communication. So I guess now what I'm looking at is how do we develop a community where we can speak to each other and, and have that inter uh, sort of, I guess, community connection and work out how to develop that neurodiverse friendly community whilst embracing differences so I guess from from my perspective neurodiversity for me is acknowledging that everyone's brains are unique Mm -hmm. some brains are differently wired um, but we all have something to bring to the table so that's what I I I guess for me discovering that term was quite empowering Shadia, um, really, really enjoying the way you're talking about this. Adriano is a very passionate opponent of binary thinking of this or that. Um, I, I would actually say that our whole perspective on life is not binary, but it's actually anti-binary, that we, that we need to see the ways in which there are spectrums, there are shades, there is difference. And as you said, everybody brings something different to the party. For a moment, I don't want you to talk to us as someone who emphasises their difference, I want you to talk to us in particular about one thing that you mentioned, and that's the notion of a safe space. Safe, psychological safety is absolutely essential for every human being. And you, you talked about having a safe space. Why is a safe space important for any young person? Mm, I guess to feel safe at a fundamental level, Um, It's important for many aspects of life, being able to connect with other people, being able to learn effectively, being able to um, have a pleasant social experience. Um, So from my perspective, feeling safe, whether it's at school or with friends, was really important, particularly because my sensory system meant that if my anxiety got heightened, it was very overwhelming. So having that safe space really helped me actually enjoy my education and yeah, be able to be part of fun projects like jazz club or um, art club and connect to teachers and um, actually be seen as, as an integral part of the community. Um, So I guess for me, a safe space means that you're able to feel comfortable and develop connections with people and feel like you can be vulnerable in that space and yeah it's uh, I think as a young person it's really important that we have those connections and feel safe and and also learn strategies when that safe space becomes unsafe and and how to deal with that Um, and as an adult it's really helped me as well Um, and I've developed some amazing friendships through those safe spaces that I might not have been able to had I not had that opportunity. Terrific. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fabulous explanation. I chose that example of safe spaces because there are some people who find the notion of creating safe spaces difficult to understand. And then they can get quite antagonistic and quite difficult about that because it's different from their experience. They've had a previous mm-hmm. experience. We introduce something different into it and they struggle with it. They really struggle with it. So 
And there are several things that come up in this conversation. We talk about neurodivergence and neurodivergency. We talk about uh, non-binary gender. We can talk about um, safe spaces. We can talk about individuality and, and so on. In your work that you're doing, how do you help people who find this change of perspective difficult to come to terms with? How do you, how do you walk them across the bridge to a new way of, of, of looking at learning and the world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I just try to talk about my own perspectives and always come from that personal perspective um, and also try and back it up with research as well. Um, because that kind of strengthens the personal perspective. But I try and explain to people that I've kind of seen both sides. So the side of feeling like different in a bad way, feeling like I don't fit in um, versus feeling like I'm a part of a community, the autistic community, feeling proud of my identity, celebrating my strengths and also knowing when to ask for help and acknowledging my own unique support needs. So I guess from my perspective, I try and when someone asks me a question about, say, maybe it's terminology, I always try and highlight my own experiences as a young person and also navigating the world as an adult and also some other autistic advocates as well because autism's not, you know, a one-size-fits-all thing. It's a huge, a, a huge spectrum and I think it's really important that we amplify multiple autistic voices, but there are a few things where we all have a similar experience. And I think once people realise and they see ways of, you know, going forward and, and, and how the community can become more inclusive, I think they become a bit more open-minded. Um, I do find that people who attend, for example, presentations already are very willing to learn just because... I advertise as an autistic person, so they want to hear my perspective. So I haven't had many issues from that point of view, but I always try and come from a place of empathy and trying to learn about where they are on their own journey of learning about neurodiversity or um, whether they're a parent or an autistic person themselves or a teacher um, and, and have that discussion with them and try to be um, as open as possible to just answering questions they might have. That's a fabulous response. And just while I think of it, shout out to um, Peter Hutton, who was your principal mm -hmm. and is one of our game changers from, uh, from Series 1, Adriano. It's, it's, um, there you go, Peter. Your work is the living legacy of the students that you've educated along the way. Shadia, um, I would love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know about the work of Autism Actually. Tell us about Autism Actually. So um, I founded Autism Actually through the help of my entrepreneurship teachers and Peter, of course, um, at, in 20, oh, I think I was 15 at the time. So um, I'd started getting invited to gigs and things and um I was told that I probably should start making it into a business because they felt that my voice was valuable. So um, my main goal, I guess, with autism actually is just to increase community awareness, um, to increase inclusion, and also, again, reframe what autism is, uh, what neurodiversity is, and sort of the narratives around that. Um, and I mainly do it through sharing my personal perspectives. 
I do consultancy work, uh, presentations, workshops. I am quite, at, well, I try to be active on social media. I share my own perspectives. Um, and I also um, do presentations with my mother, who's actually just um, going through the identification process as well of being autistic. And she's also a teacher um, in secondary school, helping um, neurodivergent students really um, succeed at uh, high school and have a, a positive education. And then um, one of my friends, Brittany, is also part of that who, and she does a lot of support work and um, also loves speaking about autism from her personal perspective. And she was actually identified at the age of 14. So her perspectives are a bit different to mine just because she was late identified. Um, and so I, I really love the fact that we all have our different perspectives that we are able to uh, come together and combine into presentations. So um, I love I love it. I just I, it gives me so much joy being able to advocate and talk about my experiences. And particularly because when I was younger, I had a lot of mentors like Peter Hutton, um, who really gave me the confidence to go down the entrepreneurship route to um, feel proud of being autistic and a different thinker um, and an independent learner. And then um, autistic mentors as well that I had that really, really, um, sort of I really admired and looked up to that gave me, again, that confidence to take it one step further. So um, I guess from my perspective, I want to give back and, and help um, the community just as I was helped as a young person. Jadia, I, I've got one last question before I hand over to Adriana. And a, a few series ago in, in the Game Changers, we spoke to a whole group of young entrepreneurs like you, young adults who are out there in the world making a difference, and like you, extraordinary energy and lots of things going on. Do you ever relax? Do you ever turn it down or you just go, <laughs> go, go all the time? Oh, yes. Relaxing is an issue for me. Yes, I am. Um... I do like being very active uh, and I guess because I'm a very avid learner and I think being able to channel that sort of energy into advocacy has been a really positive outlet. Relaxing, I have actually an assistance dog in training that is there to kind of help me sort of regulate and remind me to just switch off a bit sometimes. Um, and I think because I have anxiety on top of that, it can be a challenge relaxing. But I am slowly learning methods of self-care, like going for a walk or drawing, doing things that sort of fill me up because um, I've realised that uh, going at 100% all the time is not sustainable over the long term. But, yeah, my, my idea of relaxing is probably a bit different to most people. I like researching about, you know, animal assisted therapies or autism or connecting to people through that sort of avenue. So it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, my idea of relaxing is uh, not going out with friends. It's more just studying and, <laughs> um, yeah, having that sort of uh, cool, yeah, yeah no, interest. <laughs> I ab absolutely get that, as I said. And as I said, what you're saying here is actually exactly the same as all our young entrepreneurs were, were, were talking to us about. You know, it's really, really hard because you're always thinking about the next thing and the next thing and the, and, and the next thing around that. Adriano, over to you. Well, it's interesting just listening to that, you know, this notion of a continuous learner and unlearner, Shadia, you know, that's someone who, who inherently you are. And, and, and I love that the fact that you're an individual that remains forever curious. So uh, don't ever lose that. I think that's a, a powerful, a powerful disposition to have as you navigate through this thing called life. Talking about navigating through life, Phil said at the top of the show that you're currently studying a Bachelor of Speech Pathology. 
once you complete your degree, what would you like to use your knowledge and skills to positively impact change, especially in schools in relation to that space? Mm, good question. Uh, I, as many entrepreneurs, I want to do lots of things all at once. Um, I think I'd like to go into the research space. So being able to look at some of the common issues I see in the neurodivergent community and try and develop, I guess, strategies and solutions, particularly the non-speaking autistic community. I'm very keen on working with them and amplifying their voices, um, looking at those sorts of things, which um, obviously with my speech pathology background will give me a bit more knowledge. I also get a lot of advice, well, and learn a lot from Tim Chan, who's an Australian non-speaking um, autistic advocate. So I guess um, with my speech, I would like to try and get into that research space and kind of direct the research towards what the autistic community has expressed a need for. Um, and so there are a few other autistic researchers that are now popping up, which I'm so excited to see. I guess in terms of my practice, I really am keen to obviously provide support for neurodivergent individuals. Um, I do want to open my own private practice eventually. And because I see so many autistic people who resonate with animals um, and my own experiences, I'd also like to um, have an adjunct with um, animal assisted therapies as well. So lots of ideas. I don't know what order I'll do them in. I have a feeling I might stay at uni for a little bit longer because I love it. Um, but yeah, I, I guess from my perspective, it's just bringing that personal uh, viewpoint and, and trying to um, bring the community into the research space because um, I, I, there seems to be a need for it and it's something that I really enjoy doing. It's my passion. So, yeah. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. You've touched upon uh, your affection for animals. And I know that at Temple Stowe, that, um, that was something that really was fostered for you during your time at secondary school. I've also noticed that there are a number of schools, particularly in Victoria, that are having dogs uh, as part of their campus more and more so it's becoming more the norm than the exception in the role of animal therapy You're, you've got a bit of knowledge in that space can you share with our listeners a little bit about the value of uh, animals in terms of the therapy construct um i guess from my personal perspective because i've always sort of been drawn to animals well it was first plants but then animals from a young age i've always loved I feel calm around them. I can't explain it. And they've found that in research, even just being in the same room as an animal can actually increase oxytocin levels. Um, so I guess from that perspective, I realised that there was a way of me merging my love of animals with mm -hmm. my desire to give back to the community. And I guess because um, at Templestowe we had so many dogs come through, everyone could bring their dogs. It just, it, I think because you bond with the animal, it just lowers the stress associated. For example, in a clinic environment, it can help because it becomes less about a therapist um, and the client relationship through you bonding with the animal whilst doing the therapy. So it doesn't necessarily replace the therapy, but it can help you feel more relaxed in that environment. And certainly for me, it's really helped me learn about skills like um, you know, picking up on body language and reading my internal emotions and 
working through the energy regulation side um, that animals present to me on a very sort of macro scale. Because with animals, you can't hide your emotions. So my masking doesn't work around animals. They pick up on it. Um, so through through them, I've been able to gain insight into myself. And I think it's really great the schools are starting to incorporate animals because um, I know that at my uni we have therapy dogs visit. And even, you know, if you're having a busy day and you're anxious, you know, you see a dog and, and they don't know any of that. They just want to come and uh, interact with you and no words are needed, no explanations needed. You can just be with the animal. And I think that's really powerful. Um, and I know that that's what my assistance dog training Freya does for me. If I'm having a difficult time, she'll just come in, put her head in my lap. And then for some reason, I just feel better. So I think it's um, certainly an exciting area. And I think in Australia, uh, particularly, there's a growing understanding that there needs to be a bit more of a uh, standards because there's a lot of different standards. But um yeah, I, I think for for me as an autistic person, I know that not all autistic people like animals, but for those who love animals, it can be really powerful, particularly if you have school anxiety and find it difficult to come to school. I think having that building that rapport with an animal just takes off the pressure of all the other stuff that you have to compete with as sensory uh, anxiety levels, uh, you know, concentration even. Um, I was actually at a, at the cinemas a few months ago with Freya for the first time and I have noise sensitivity and I forgot my headphones and there was a really loud bit in the movie and I noticed that I was just starting to really stroke her very quickly and I realised that just having her there helped me redirect my sensory issues and, and focus my attention on her. And for that, for me, that was really powerful because suddenly I now saw spaces that used to be that I used to consider inaccessible, suddenly possible with her help. So it's a very exciting space and, again, an area that I would love to um, research further. Dog, yeah, dogs are the best, aren't they, Shadia? They're just the best. What sort of dog is Freya? Uh, a spoodle. So she's a cocker spaniel cross with a poodle. Very fluffy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, my, 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 dog, my dog Earl is a puggle. Unfortunately, he's an antisocial puggle, so he doesn't actually like other dogs. But um, you know, I wish I could take him everywhere with me, but he's just, he finds it difficult. Sorry, Adriana. Shadia, last week, Phil and I were in, in South Australia visiting a primary school. And one of the things that we witnessed was their commitment to uh, utilising animals for, for therapy. And there were a number of young people at that school that had real, not only socialisation challenges, but kind of uh, connectedness with school period you know, mm. uh, and connectedness and trust in people because of mm. how adults perhaps have failed them along the way. And, and I witnessed them playing with little piglets. I was very jealous that two of them got to hold two kangaroos as part of the, as part of the, the two little joeys, which were just adorable. But I just saw this total transformation in these young people when they were in the presence of these animals. It also was around the fact that there was a, a connectedness about nurturing something else other than themselves, mm. you know, and that perhaps for some of these young people who feel that they haven't been seen or haven't been loved or treated, they were actually trying to replicate that with, with this animal, uh, which was, it, it was beautiful to witness. I want to, I want to just shift the conversation a little bit around the value and the unique strengths that neurodiverse people bring to a school or a workplace. Can you share with our listeners some tips for working with neurodivergent students or colleagues, for instance, perhaps around things like uh, sensory sensitivities, uncertainty, executive functioning, working memory, communication, those type of things? I think my main piece of advice is usually just 
engage with the individual, whether it's in a school environment, uh, because we all have our unique sensory profiles and you can't really make an assumption of what issues we might have or even what strengths we might have. And our interests are also very diverse as well. So I, I often get questions by um, non-autistic people like, how do I engage an autistic person in the conversation? And I said, it's really easy. You could go up to them and ask, what are your interests? Just take, take an interest in them as a person and you'll find that there are things that pop up. And then, you know, um, I, I know that sometimes some, some people go, oh, but, you know, you don't want them getting too focused on their interests. But um, as someone whose interests kind of define who I am and part of an integral part of who I am, when someone engages with me on a social level with my interests, I am suddenly feeling very engaged with them because that's how I relate to the world. It's through my interests. Small talk is weird to me. Like, I don't get it. I don't want to talk about the weather. I want to talk about uh, the latest research I've read or um, the latest uh, Star Trek series or whatever. So um, I think it's really great to just engage with the person. And I also say in a school level, in, try and include the student in decision-making processes. I know that in... And in my school, it was very student-led. And I think that was a big part of my advocacy because you actually felt like you were driving your own education. And, of course, when you move beyond school, that's a lot of your life. Um, and I think it's really empowering to be part of whether it's developing an ILP or IEP and there's different terms, your education plan. Have the student there because you might be surprised what, what the student has to say and, and contribute. Um, and as I said, when I was in entry level, I wrote a note describing what it meant to, for me to be autistic and what I wanted teachers to understand. And they found it really helpful. So um, my, my first point of advice, always just listen to the individual, um, try not to assume. I think in the workplace too, um, if you have an understanding of the individual's maybe sensory prep, like sensory sensitivities, you can ask them, is there anything I can do to help? Do you need, I don't know, the blinds turned like shut if they have light sensitivity? Small things like that can actually have a huge impact. Um, and I think um, checking in is can be helpful too, having that trusted person that just, you know, is neutral and goes, okay, so is there anything I can do to help? Things like that. I think being able to bond through interests I find is helpful because, that's a way of starting conversation. That's how we often uh, connect with other people. But yeah, I think it's, uh, there's not necessarily one right answer, but I think it's just trying not to make your own assumptions of our, our needs and, and who we are and, and just engage with us and ask us some questions, even around things like terminology. So the autistic community primarily prefers autistic identity first language some might have differences the easiest way to know what an autistic person prefers is to ask them um, yeah, sure. so, it's, a, it's, it's a very yeah. it's a very it's a very clear message you're giving off there Shadia, and it's it's re, it's a really really important thing and, and what you what you're doing there is you're correcting that sort of common misconception that all autistic people are the same which is really important and you're emphasising that we need to personalise and we need to individualise along the way. Are there any other common misconceptions that people have about um, autistic and neurodivergent people? Uh, how much time do you have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another thing that I get a bit upset about is the fact that uh, 
some people assume that autism has a look so you don't look autistic or are you high functioning um things like that uh come from i guess a maybe well-intentioned but when it's said to me i feel really dismissed as an autistic person um, and again, recent research has shown that functioning labels aren't actually indicative of the person's unique strengths, needs, um, uh, abilities, all that sort of thing. So I, again, um, I think it's important to not make assumptions based on the way we present ourselves, uh, our communication, um, the way we communicate. So I communicate by speaking. Um, other people might communicate with an augmentative alternative communication device. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that um, a person who uses a different form of communication is necessarily less intelligent or, you know, less able to engage socially. I think it's just important to um, get to know us again as an individual. Um, and I think functioning labels are something that I don't find explains the whole story. So um, I remember a quote by Laura Tisnick that said, low functioning means that your assets are ignored and high functioning means that your uh, your support needs are ignored. So again, reshifting that perspective about autism as something that's linear you know, from function, low functioning to high functioning and actually more of a three multidimensional spectrum that has different aspects um, that we might have strengths in or difficulties in, whether it's executive functioning or sensory issues, sensory profiles or, you know, visual thinking, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily a linear binary thing. It's actually a lot more complex than that. Uh, another one that uh, sometimes pops up is that autistics lack empathy. And mm -hmm. um, as someone who actually picks up a lot of emotion from people, I know that this isn't true. I think that the way that we might express our empathy is different. So, um, for example, I often, to show my empathy with someone, talk about something that happened to me that might have been similar but I don't do that whole, oh, that must be so terrible for you sort of thing. That's not how I relate to people. Um, so it's a different form of empathy, but it doesn't mean it's not there. So I, I guess those are some of the main ones I can think of. Uh, another one is that, no, we're not all into maths and IT. We have a diverse range of interests. Um, just think about some of my friends, you know, journalism, uh, art, uh, music, um, some, well, science, you know, biology, all that sort of thing. And even people like me who are interested in allied health. I think it's really important that we shift that perspective too, because I think sometimes there's an assumption of, oh, well, because you're autistic, you need to fit into that interest area or that career pathway. And really the discussion should be more about, okay, if you're interested in that career pathway, what can we do to accommodate you, support you, um, help you achieve your goals? Shadi, so much of what you're teaching us today and while we've been having this chat in the background, as we usually do, Adriana and I have been texting each other to sort of think about what we want to say and questions and so on. We're both saying to each other, we're learning so much, we're learning so much, which is mm. tremendous. So much of what you've been teaching us today is not just about people with neurodiverse needs, but by taking us to the margins of the whole experience, you're actually teaching us about the whole experience because you're teaching us that what we really need to be doing is to personalise and to individualise and to engage and to communicate and to not put labels on things. Um, I, I laugh at that label about 
high functioning because I can guarantee you that until I've had two cups of coffee, I'm not high functioning ever <laughs> in, any, in, any, in any given day, you know, so it's sort of, you know, but, but we do that, don't we? we there, there's a human thing that we have where we put labels on people and I think that's unfortunate. Final question for you before I hand over to my art teacher friend to wrap up. How do you think schools can work to build a better world? Mm. Uh, well, based on my school's model, I would say including student voice. I think it's really important that it shifts from this teacher does everything model to um, a community-based model where we're actually working together as opposed to a hierarchical type model. And I think um, I've, I'm seeing increasingly within the autistic community younger and younger advocates now coming out and talking about their experiences. So um, just because a person is young doesn't mean that they don't have anything to contribute. I think it's really important to kind of celebrate diversity and and have those open discussions and I guess increase community awareness through talking about it. Um, just like we have um, other community awareness events, I think fostering that inclusive space and talking openly about issues is really important. Talking about why it's important to celebrate all minds, uh, having examples of, you know, uh, well, not necessarily just successful, but people out there that are doing things for the community and, and contributing to society, um, I think is really uh, powerful. And I know that in my school, it was just so normal to have our own differences and we all had unique strengths. We used to have students that were pros in IT. We knew other students who were really good at art. Um, and I think also fostering that mindset of, oh, for me, growth mindset was a huge thing. So Carol Gray's work on growth mindset, and that was a big part of my education, realising that learning is not a fail, you know, get mm -hmm. failing system that actually as you develop, um, you know, your learning process or, you know, going through that journey in life, not necessarily just academic context, you know, there might be setbacks, but they actually help inform the next, the progress and that you need those setbacks in a way to kind of progress. So instead of seeing myself as failed, if I got say 50%, I looked and went, oh, well, of that 50%, I got 100% of that solid. So next time I know what I need to work on. And I think that's really important too, because I think being a perfectionist, had I not gone to a school that encouraged that, um, I might've been I might have really struggled when I'd failed. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for any student that's powerful that we're, you know, not looking at things like, well, you're good at this and you're bad at this, but give it a go, try. And it, if it doesn't work, we can learn from it. So yeah. um, I think that was a really positive atmosphere and being around people of, you know, they had different strengths and learning from them too, you know, learning from different minds and and actually going wow that's cool you're really good at auditory processing i suck at that um so <laughs> peter hunt and i always used to giggle because peter's dyslexic and i and i have auditory processing issues so i'd often say you should read this book and he said that's the worst thing you could say to a, dys a dyslexic person <laughs> so we we learned that we had our own strengths and sensory profiles and learning preferences but it was great that we had that open discussion we could just laugh yeah. about it sometimes and and destigmatize sort of seeing it as a deficit. I, I am going to walk away from today's conversation, Shadaya, on a Friday, totally inspired uh, after listening and learning from you. I'm hearing powerful, powerful constructs around don't judge. 
I'm hearing powerful, powerful constructs is that every time an educator enters into a dialogue or, or an encounter with a young person, park any prejudice and be open to their possibility. I'm hearing every time that we enter into a dialogue or, or an encounter with a young person, don't operate from the model of deficit, operate from the model of positivity about moving forward and up, which is a deep construct of love for the other. You, you have taught us so much today. You have taught me personally so much that I thought I already knew about neurodivergent people, but the nuance in your intellect and your freedom to share that and your lived experience is a real gift to all of us. Shadia, I wish you much success moving forward. Phil asked you a question right there at the end about a better world. We're a better world for having people like you in it and people who are passionate about celebrating diversity and celebrating difference and realizing that those things are our strengths. They are not our weaknesses. Uh, Shadia, I wish you all the very best going forward. This particular broadcast will come out uh, sometime mid-May and uh, I'm going to be selling it on every piece of social media that I have because uh, I actually believe everyone from our Prime Minister down to the gardener in a school needs to hear this conversation. You are light and you are a breath of fresh air and I just want to say thank you. Oh, well, I appreciate you having me. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.